Is that our cold open? I thought it had to be longer than 30 seconds. Well, welcome back to National Disability Radio, NDR. Woo! Jack putting applause in there. Woo! All right. So, Welcome to our amazing holiday special. Happy holidays, everyone. At this time of year, there's, what, at least 20 different holidays going on. So whatever it is that you celebrate, happy holidays. I am one third of your hosting team, Michelle Bishop. I'm the Voter Access and Engagement Manager at NDRN. And I'm Stephanie Flint, Public Policy Analyst at NDRN. And I'm also one of your co-hosts. And you know what? I can't stand The All I Want for Christmas is You song by Mariah Carey. If I have to hear that song one more time. Stephanie, coming in hot. How could you say that? It's a classic. The people need to know how I feel. I don't know that they do. Oh, no. Do Do not send hate mail to podcast at (laughs) endingrant.org, please. But while we're on the topic, I think Santa Baby is creepy. Anyway, Raquel, take it away. It is, though. Hey everyone, this is Raquel. Um, I am back from being sick. So for the better or worse of it, I no longer sound like Marge Simpson and her sisters. And I'm Teen Stephanie. I also don't like All I Want for Christmas is You. And if you want to send hate mail, the email is raquel.rosa at ndrn.org. Yes! That's it. Cut recording. Cut recording. I'm too upset. I can't go on because I love that song. Jack, well, actually, first, Jack, introduce yourself as our producer, and then just go ahead and just cut. This episode's canceled. No, tell us your opinion on All I Want for Christmas is You. Okay. My opinion is that I'm Jewish. Hi, producer Jack Rosen here, and since this will be coming out the week of, wishing all of our listeners a happy Hanukkah. Yes, happy Hanukkah to you, Jack, and to all of our listeners. Uh, So this is our big holiday special. So what do we have on tap, Jack? Who do we have for this episode? First up, we have Jules Sherrod, who is a cookbook author from Canada. He wrote about how he rediscovered his love of cooking and made the kitchen accessible to him. And Raquel, who is our spotlight story today? Well, we are in for a treat. We have Natalie Aldrin from Disability Rights Florida. She's going to talk to us about traveling while disabled. Well, first and foremost, Jules, we are super excited to have you on our podcast today. How are you doing? I am doing great and I'm excited to be here too. Awesome. Awesome. So I guess my first question for you, especially somebody who um, also really Um, has a love for cooking as well, something that I'm super passionate about. Um, You know, how did you rediscover your love of cooking? So um, what happened was for a long time, because of how my disabilities progressed, I could not cook. And I used to spend five plus hours cooking for myself and people that I love. It was like my joy in the way I would distress, de-stress. And so I have watched a video of another cookbook author using an Instapot and talking about how Instapot had helped her manage um, cooking with rheumatoid arthritis. And parts of my disability mimic rheumatoid arthritis. They're very similar in how they work um, as far as pain and inflammatory responses and mobility issues. And before that, my exposure to the Instapot was people telling me how much how much I needed one and then 10 minutes of them ranting about all the things that they hated about it. And I'm like, that's not a way to get me to use the tool. <laughs> uh, and then but I saw this person like actually talk about things. I'm like, wow, that I need. So I got one. 
And um, instantly it revolutionized my cooking and made cooking accessible to me. And then I started to experiment and develop recipes specifically for the Instapot, as well as play with other tools that able-bodied people typically poo-poo and act like they are not good tools that are amazing for disability. And But no one ever talks about them in terms of an accessibility device. They all just either talk about how... Um, they don't like it or how it makes somebody lazy to use something like this where they don't understand why this tool exists. And so yeah, just over time, I just began to play with things. And um, as I developed my blog, Disabled Kitchen and Garden, I wrote a post one day with my favorite accessibility tools in the kitchen. And then some people in the comments left their own things that they use in the kitchen that they use not as prescribed. And an example of that that I talk about in my cookbook is a egg multi-slicer that can also be used to chop things like strawberries and um, mushrooms with soft skin and stuff like that. So that's how it all started. So Jules, I have to ask, because I am a spoonie myself. And if our listeners aren't familiar with the idea of spoonies, we are disabled people for whom chronic pain uh, is a regular part of our disability experience. I, I know that's something you talk about in your work. And so I was wondering, um, what does replenishing your spoons look like for you? And how is that something that you're able to prioritize that kind of self-care in a society that puts such a heavy emphasis on productivity and some of those really ableist kind of ideals? My go-to is is doing flat happy on the couch with my dogs. Um, flat happy is like not really napping, even though it's supposed to be napping, but it's just lying down, cuddling with my dogs, um, watching something on television, doing something that requires absolutely no effort and no thought. Because my spoons are both um, fatigue-related and pain-related. And as people who deal with both, they know that is a secular, 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 that's the word I'm looking for. It's a secular process where your pain makes you more fatigued and your fatigue makes your pain levels higher. And you have to cut that circuit. So I do things that require absolutely no effort and just make me happy. Um, but to go, that's like just my number one is just like vetting out and doing nothing and feeling great about doing nothing. Even reading requires too much energy to do. So it's all about things that I can do passively and are like boosted my serotonin and, and hormone levels. But to go even further than that, I have a system where I check in with my body three times a day and I base my activity levels off, or I base my activities off of what my body is telling me I'm at. So I, I assess my spoons when I begin my work day. I assess my spoons again at lunchtime and then I assess them a third time at the end of my workday. And the goal is to have one spoon left at my end of my workday. And if I find that I only have one spoon left at my lunch, then I'm done for the day and I do some type of self-care. And the reason for that, and I found, and this is how I was able to get over, because for the longest time, I was like, you have to work, 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 work. You have to overcome. You have to power through. If you don't, you're lazy. All that ableist messaging. I found 
that I used I, I started to keep a journal of all the times I would stop working when my body told me to and how productive that made me compared to when I would just plow through. And I could see that taking breaks when my body said take a break, even if I was like technically on a time sheet working less hours, I was actually getting more done because I wasn't making mistakes. I wasn't like spending two hours on a task that would make like would normally be 10 minutes if I was feeling better. And that's how I'm able to be like, wow. So like this actually works. And now I have, and then I started to notice that all the self care time that I would have to take throughout the week equaled one full work day. So I started taking a four day work week and I'm even more productive now that I'm doing a four day work week. And I understand that is a privilege that I have because I am self-employed. So my advice is if you have that capacity or that ability to kind of set your own working hours and be flexible, I highly recommend like doing less work time because you will end up doing more in that time that you are on the clock, so to speak. Thank you, Jules. I really appreciate that because cooking, which we're talking about today, requires spoons. So does entertaining for the holidays. So I love that that's something that you think about and integrate into your work. And for any of our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with spoon theory, we can put some links for you in the show notes and you can learn more. And another thing that cooking can require for some people with disabilities is accessibility. Um, I know that's something you touched on in your book, so I'm wondering, how how did you incorporate uh, universal design into this cookbook? When I was creating the cookbook, I tried my best um, with the help of um, beta readers and other disabled people, talking with them, having conversations about what are their most common points of failure in the cooking process. And so one of the things that I did is I created recipes that addressed those points of failure and eliminated them. So some examples of that are complete equipment lists because for people who have different types of cognitive dysfunction, the process of trying to figure out what they need to cook together with equipment, that step alone can take them upwards of two hours and then forget something and it derails them during the cooking process and then the food gets through and then it's a whole snowball effect. I also... Um, simplify the instructions so that there's no hidden steps because that's another stumbling point. The way that ingredients are listed is also done with universal design in mind. But there's also um, some how to organize your kitchen that consider both mobility issues and cognitive impairment. Um, Simple things like and again, this is having to over overcome. That's not the word I want to use. That's a horrible use. Pushing back against those ableist messages that your house needs to be super neat and tidy and everything needs to be put away. And if it's in sight, it's cluttered and you're a bad housekeeper. The fact is, if you keep something in sight, you're more likely to use it. You're going to save spoons. And so I recommend like your frequently used utensils and small appliances, you keep those things out at the point of performance. So it's all about your point of performance, not making um, eliminating steps so that you're not having to work as often 
and um, things like doing food prep um, so that you're only having to do it a couple times a month instead of, of like that once a week food prep that people um, espouse that is causing uh, or that's a recipe for you just to throw everything in the bin because you have no energy to cook that stuff that's all chopped in your in your fridge completely filled in Tupperware containers. Um, so those are some examples where I looked at not only the common stumbling blocks, but also the common symptoms of disability. So instead of focusing, say, on arthritis or MS or ADHD or autism, I asked myself, what are the common symptoms, pain, fatigue, cognitive dysfunction, um, are the three main ones, but there's some others that I address in the in the cookbook as well. As well, and how do we create strategies um, and techniques to again cut that circuit of what causes um, all those things to flare up and create strategies to support those rather than frustrate them. Yeah, no, that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, and thank you so much for talking um, about um, the tools and being able to organize those and, you know, those various techniques. Um, another thing that I'd love to address is the low expectations portion of it and just, you know, being nervous about cooking, right? Like when you hear about cooking and it's like we were talking about a little bit um, earlier, uh, prior to this episode, it's such a broad thing, right? And so when you think of cooking, um, or when some people think of cooking, um, especially, you know, when you're looking at low expectations that the disability community is uh, subjected to, or even just what if I can't do this because of how I'm feeling today. So I was wondering if you could offer some advice uh, to to disabled people who are interested in starting to to teach themselves how to cook or even just learning how to cook in general. My first recommendation is to start small. So I'm going to tell a story that has to do with um, confidence and creating um, healthy attitudes around food and how this works in Canadian culture, and I think it's taught to some degree in American culture, but the sooner that you teach a child to cook and give them independence in the kitchen, the more confident they, they become because they have these little wins of, I oh, look at this thing that I made on my own, a sense of accomplishment, and it just boosts your self-esteem. Cooking, having that independence is a huge factor when it comes to mental health and self-esteem because you are winning. You are creating some type of, wow, I made this thing. Um, so it's about starting off small and setting yourself up for success and ignoring the things that may um, dissuade you from doing that. So don't chop all your vegetables. Buy pre-chopped vegetables from the fro frozen food section because they're actually healthier than the vegetables that are in the fresh food section uh, because frozen food is flash, flash frozen at the time of picking. Fresh vegetables are dying and losing nutrients as they sit in that area. So you're actually being kinder to your body by going to the frozen food section and you're saving money. So that's that's a barrier that you can eliminate. Um, find recipes for, again, the Instapot, the one reason why I love it, is because you can just dump a bunch of ingredients in it, put on the lid, set a timer, 
And you have succeeded in making yourself a delicious meal that has taken you no effort. There's um, one recipe in my book that makes a delicious coconut tomato soup. And it's like five minutes. You open up a can of diced tomatoes, you add some onion, and you add um, a spice mix. You set the lid and you're done. Easy peasy. And you've made yourself delicious soup. I think it's like eight servings of it. Um, and it's an easy, quick win. If you, um, so those are, I think those are the, like the biggest things that start small and do what you need to do to eliminate the barriers that typically get, get in the way. And a lot of that for disabled people has to do with how much time it takes to prepare meals. Like even something like using a meal kit is overwhelming because Sure, all the vegetables are chopped for you, but you still have to stand at the stove for half an hour to one hour. And a lot of us do not have that capacity either because we literally cannot stand and a stove is too high to use in our wheelchair or are we have some type of pain condition that prevents us from doing something that simple. And I have that simple in in quotation marks, like air quotes, because it isn't that simple. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And now I'm really hungry. So also thanks for that. But seriously, that that is super, super helpful. And I know for me personally, growing up, I definitely found a lot of that, um, a lot of those things super helpful. You know, when I was a kid, I would make things like salsa in the kitchen. And I'm so grateful that, you know, my my parents encouraged age-appropriate exploration in the kitchen. So I, I love that you spotlighted that. Well, Jules, we've talked about some pretty serious disability stuff, which is what we tend to do on this podcast. But this is also our holiday special. So we were wondering if you have a favorite holiday recipe you could recommend for us. In my cookbook, is a recipe for air fryer potato scones and mashed potato scones. So the reason we typically make them, they're a Scottish recipe. They come from my Scottish heritage on my maternal grandmother's side. And you make them with leftover mashed potatoes. And leftover mashed potatoes is probably a word that people like Jules that does not exist. Like we're talking about, but you are making mashed potatoes anyways for the holiday meals. So make an extra half a bag or something like and intentionally make those leftover mashed potatoes and a scone for people who don't know, because it's kind of like a biscuit. Biscuits are cookies in Canada. They're a hard cookie. Um, biscuits, not the scones and biscuits aren't the same, but they're very similar. And but the thing with this scone is that it's a dessert scone and you serve it hot, fresh out of the oven and you slather it in butter or margarine or whatever you want to slather it in. And then you pour um, maple syrup, hot, warm maple syrup on top of it. But you could also do jam on top of it is another really good thing. But it's a dessert scone. And if you want it, you could also make it savory by if you have any like bacon bits leftover from either making for your stuffing or your Caesar salad or whatever, you can throw some bacon bits and some chives or green onion, um, the greens of the green onion in there and make a savory version of it. And it is delicious. And you really wouldn't think that you put mashed potatoes in something that is 
supposed to be served sweet, but trust me, it works. I love mashed potatoes. That's my favorite thing to have at Thanksgiving. So you're speaking directly to my soul right now, Jules. I will put mashed potatoes in any recipe. So I'll be sure to go check that out. Well, Jules, you've given us a lot to think about. You've also made us a bit hungry, or at least speaking for myself there. Um starving absolutely starving right now definitely about to eat some mashed potatoes sorry jack go on no it's fine thank you for taking the time to meet with us today um and where can folks uh find more of your stuff this has been a pleasure being here and if you want to go to julesherrod.com j-u-l-e-s-s-h-e-r-r-e-d.com you can find information to buy my book around the world um i also have a blog and there's links to my social media and my other websites and everything it's like my online author hub is um the the best place to go we'll be sure to include that in the show notes uh thank you so much for joining us today jules my pleasure all right everyone it is holiday time we're talking turkey we're talking christmas we're talking menorahs so now we've got people who are flying to visit family and friends And, you know, this experience also includes people with disabilities, right? Um, Today, we have a wonderful guest who is going to talk to us about the highways and byways and airways of travel while being disabled. Hi, Natalie. How's it going? It's going really well. Going really well. Looking forward to the holiday season. (laughs) Yes. Can you tell us, um, just tell us who you are, introduce yourself and uh, a little bit about you. So, of course, my name is Natalie Alden. And... um, I am a C5 quadriplegic and I use a power wheelchair. Uh, I was actually disabled at the age of 16. So I've been in this chair for quite a long time. I currently work at Disability Rights Florida and I've been here 19 years. Uh, I primarily work right now on our representative payee program, which includes an extensive amount of travel. Uh, in this month alone, I think there's one week I'll actually be home. And so it, it, it's a very rewarding job, and I've actually been able to work on uh, multiple parts of our agency and probably under every single grant that, that we have. Yes, uh, definitely a shining star at Disability Rights Florida. Natalie, just for bonus information, what do you do when you are not saving the world? Oh, so I, I am active um, with a lot of my city entities. I uh, actually sit on the Mayor's Disability Council. I also um, worked a lot with adaptive recreational and sports. Um, I uh, love to garden. I love to sew my with my sewing machine. And uh, I like to hang out with my five-year-old granddaughter. <laughs> Wonderful. So Natalie, as you uh, mentioned earlier, you travel extensively. I know that you have been in Florida for a very long time. And you've lived other places as well. So I was hoping that you could talk to us a little bit about um, what your travel, your overall travel experience has been like. What method do you prefer? Um, What have been some real successes? What have been some real bummers? Um, Let's start there. So I would say that overall, I do prefer to drive. I think that um, being somebody who has a, a very severe disability but being able to have that control over going from point A to point B is my favorite mode of transportation. But of course, you can't always drive where you want to go unless you want to take four days to get there. So, of course, 
you know, flying is one of those methods that is is a, an essential at some moments in time. I've had some really good experiences and I've had some really poor experiences. I used to live in Colorado and I know that um, back when my oldest son, oh, I think he was just a little over a year old and we had to fly from Colorado to Jacksonville and driving with a power chair is one thing. Driving with a power chair and a baby is like way, way um, out there. I know that uh, you see like the accommodations and all of that. And I think knowing your rights kind of show you more on what you can and can't do. I know I, I have a tendency to always gate check my chair just because of the fact that I want to make sure that I have the most access to it. And when you have an impairment like mine, you are always the first person on the plane. They always want to make sure you're getting down there first and you have plenty of time to get on there. I've traveled with PCAs and I've traveled on my own. Um, there's good and bad points to that, depending on the airline. I would say in general, you know, my experience with flying is that I'm only going to do it if I absolutely have to. I kind of don't like to do uh, traveling, especially in the holiday season on a plane, because when you have more overcrowding, you have more overbooked airlines. And so I, I would just say be very pick and choosy if you do plan on doing it. And pre-planning is essential. I think knowing exactly what's going to happen, talking to the airline, making sure they're understanding that you use a power wheelchair. Um, of course, they're always going to ask you about the batteries. I always say if you can have somebody take their, their phone or a camera and just do a walk around of your chair right prior to um, getting on the plane so that you have a digital uh, recording of the what if your chair is in really good shape or bad shape or whatever, because that's going to help you if something happens to your chair afterwards. When you first go up to the, the desk and they look at your chair, some airlines are going to really look at your chair and they are going to write down anything that might be wrong with it if they can actually tell. What you don't want happening is somebody who doesn't say anything and they want to argue with you afterwards that maybe the damage was there beforehand. So I, I think it's very critical to make sure you are getting some kind of, you know, digital record of your the condition of your chair. And then and then part of it is a preference on whether or not you want to get somebody to actually put you in that Hannibal Lecter chair, as I call it, from your chair to the actual seat. I know that uh, I, I have PCAs that have traveled with me that simply they will just pick me up, you know, like a baby doll and put me all the way in my chair. But of course, if you're going by yourself, you're going to utilize the, the staff, the employees there, and communication is going to be your best thing on trying to get transferred to and from your chair into the seat that they give you. And, and I think that's also why you really want to make sure you're contacting them ahead of time. I find if you're really nice to the person who talks to you, um, even on airlines that don't have like preferred seating, they will really try to get you into like a bulkhead seat or something where it's going to be easier to do that transfer. You know, a, a spoon 
full of sugar does go a long, long way. And so I know that uh, I did have the opportunity to travel all the way to Ireland on vacation one time. And that was a very long flight. And I think it's very doable for people to be able to do things like that. But in the same breath, you have to be proactive. Uh, I'm very lucky because of the fact that I do have a, a drainage bag. So I didn't have to worry about actually having to be transferred or for somebody to carry me to the restroom that probably is not going to be accessible enough for me anyways. So I do tell people that, you know, if you're going to be traveling, feel free to bring a urinal or something. I know one of the things many people with disabilities have a tendency to do is be like, well, I don't want to, I don't want people to see that or or I don't want to, I, I really say embrace your disability, really embrace it. It doesn't matter. It's a part of making it where you can be as independent as possible. And if me bringing a urinal on the plane is what I need, then that's what I need. And so, but I can go further and further on this, but I, I will go ahead and break, put it back to Raquel right now. Those are really great tips. Um, I think there's a lot that I know it's new to me. Um, I think there's a lot that is going to be new to a lot of our listeners. Um, really fantastic tips. Um, I love the gate checking. I love the video piece. Um, Self-advocacy. Holy cow. Like that's, I mean, I already know about that part, but I'm just saying that how important it is to speak up and keep that accountability present. It's that's, that's the secret sauce, Natalie. That's it. Um, I'm going to actually pitch it over to Stephanie because I'm sure she's got a couple of questions for you as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and Natalie, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us when it comes to um, traveling with planes, trains, and automobiles and all of the things. I think that one thing that uh, that really has been demonstrated is that, you know, when it comes to individuals with disabilities, you know, one size doesn't fit all when it comes to traveling. Some things may work for some people and some things may work for others. And then also too, you know, when we have these conversations, right, you know, we're able to, you know, maybe take different tips that other folks have that may work well for us. Um, but yeah, no, thank you so, so much for, um, for sharing with us today. I'm trying to think if I, sorry guys, I'm trying to think if I have any questions. I feel kind of bad, but like, I feel like you've covered like all of the good things, I guess, maybe a question that I have for you. And I know flying can be super, flying can definitely have its challenges, its difficulties. And so you know, and you've definitely covered, um, you know, uh, some of the challenges and difficulties and how you've gone about, you know, advocating for yourself when it comes to flying and different things. And I don't know, I feel like sometimes we need to hear some positive experiences, right? When you've, uh, when it comes to traveling through the holidays, I know for me personally, sometimes I get super anxious about what, what kind of person I'm going to get at TSA? Are they going to try to over assist me? Are they going to try to test my boundaries? Um, just for some context, I think most of our listeners know I'm a blind person. And so sometimes people might say, for example, try to grab me in the middle of the security line. And I'm like, hey, can you ask, don't grab me? Like, you know, it's, it's, 
<laughs> can you please tell me where exactly you'd like me to go in terms of ZYX and XYZ versus grabbing me and trying to pull me, you know, one place and then another and then another. Like, let's treat people with disabilities like humans. Um, but I guess this is a long-winded way of saying, could you tell us about one of your positive experiences just so that we can kind of, I don't know, I think that might be helpful for folks traveling um, over the holidays who maybe you know, anxious about the whole, whole ordeal. Of course, we do have ne negative experiences, um, you know, no experience in terms of traveling um, and flying with a disability is going to be perfect, but that doesn't mean that you're always going to have bad experiences all the time, even though, you know, we, we have both types, right? So, yeah, and, and I definitely can. I know that um, one, one of my fondest memories was actually on a Southwest airline when you know they got me, I was down. I was flying by myself, and I they got me on the plane. And the steward, he actually kneeled down so that he could see me eye to eye. And he asked me, he's like, "Hey, I just wanted to have a conversation with you and ask you if anything happened to go wrong in the plane, would it be okay if I just grabbed you?" And he was showing me. Um, underneath my arms and pull you off the plane if there happens to be an emergency. I just want to make sure that there's not going to be an issue with that. And and I was so I was so happy about the fact that you actually had somebody who not only was very good about disability etiquette, didn't just stand and tower over me, but actually kneeled down to my level and and then wanted to have a conversation about what was going to make me comfortable getting me off the plane in an emergency. Of course, I told him, I said, you know, I really don't care how you get me off the plane as long as you get me off the plane. Um, you know, it, but it's great when you have people that that actually want to take that time to make sure that you're going to be okay. And and, and that particular steward, I, I made sure because he was so accommodating during the whole time um, on the plane, making sure I was taken care of. Um, because I was flying by myself, he wanted to make sure that the landing was going to be okay for me. And I actually made sure that when I got off the plane, I found a manager for Southwest and let them know, hey, this particular individual went above and beyond. This is this is what, you know, you know, you've got ADA and then you've got what is a human reaction to it, you know. We want something that's more practical. And and he did that. And so and I was told that that when you do give them those kudos like that, they do get bonuses. So I was really happy to hear that also. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's so important that like, you know, when folks are doing a good job, I definitely try to go out of my way when it comes to airlines for folks that are doing a good job to, you know, let those airlines know like, hey, like this is how it should be done. Like keep it up. Like the fact that that, that uh, person asked you versus just assuming, like I personally would have pot would have maybe been startled if someone just randomly came over to me and like grabbed me out of my seat, like trying to get me off a plane, even if it was an emergency, which could be more startling, just depending on the circumstance. But like the fact that, you know, he was willing to talk with you about your needs. And I think that's just a perfect demonstration about how, you know, one size doesn't fit all. And thankfully he got that. And I, I'm totally here for that. That's awesome. Well, and I think that, it, you know, as a person with a disability, 
whether I've been traveling alone or whether I've been traveling with a PCA or family, you know, I always want to make sure that I'm I'm taking a, a really good active role in what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so when, you know, I'm being gate checked, you know, when my I'm gate checking my chair, it ends up where I'm letting the stewardess know or whoever it is that's out there that if they have any problems, that this is my phone number, I try to make sure that my PCA puts my chair into the position that I know is going to be the most helpful for the people who are putting my my chair onto the plane. And I think that if you try to make sure you have that good communication back and forth, they are going to make sure that they're taking care of your property better. So it's just one of those things that, you know, we kind of think that, the people doing stuff for us know how to do something better and they may not. And mm-hmm. we should never be too shy or too much. Oh, well, they're doing their job to take the time to say, no, I want to make sure you're doing it correctly. I know I had an instance once um, when I was on one of the planes and my PCA was like, this is before we took off. My PCA is looking out the window and literally tells me, it looks like they're trying to rip my chair apart in order to get it on the plane. And I immediately was like yelling for the stewardess and letting her know, hey, you know, that's a $35,000 piece of equipment that they're about to break. And immediately she said, hey, everybody's walking away from your chair. So they, they evidently radioed down very quickly. And the guy came all the way up spoke to me about my chair and then made sure that it was placed on there properly. But had I not taking, taken the stance of saying, hey, wait a minute, I see what you're doing and you need to do it better. We need to educate mm-hmm. people one at a time and we need to make sure that we're doing it in a way where you're being respectful. Because I think if you're not, then they're not going to listen to you. Yeah. Absolutely. I feel like sometimes we can get lost in the customer service shuffle at that point, you know, especially around the holidays, you know, airlines uh, definitely deal with a lot of angry people around the holiday, angry people in general, but especially around the holidays. And like, if we can try, and again, like, I'm not saying that people with disabilities have to be perfect little advocates all the time. When I have 6am flights, I better have coffee or I, I get I'm I'm not the happiest person. Um, But all that to be said, you know, right, like the littlest things like educating one person and advocating for yourself to one person, you know, who may like understand, um, you know, because of your advocacy later on, the littlest things just they make the biggest differences. And that's something that I always try to tell people, even if it doesn't seem like it, you know, educating one person, whether it's, you know, an airline attendant or, you know, someone at the grocery store about disability etiquette and doing it in a respectful way, if you absolutely can, that really can make such a big difference for other folks down the road. Well, and I'll give you a a thing. I was actually at a layover in between um, my designation, my designation, I was, hold on a second. I was actually at a layover in between destinations. And when I had gotten off the plane and they put me into my power chair, I went over to the new place where I was going to be getting onto the new plane. And I made sure I spoke with somebody at the desk and very much was like, hey, you know, I just want to make sure you know that I'm here and please let me know if you need me somewhere certain, you know, because I know the airport's really crazy right now. 
And she was like, oh, no problem, no problem. And then probably maybe like 10, 15 minutes later, she came over to me and told me, hey, they're actually going to be delaying this flight and they're going to make everybody try to get a different flight. I'm letting you know this first so that you can call this number. And she gave me a phone number and she said, and they will go ahead and get you onto the next soonest flight. And so she gave me that information, told me where to go to call before she announced it to everybody else that was sitting there waiting for the same flight. So I do say, you know, being a little bit more respectful and and trying to be a little proactive really ended up helping me because I was one of the few people that was able to get on a sooner flight. And, you know, I only ended up having to wait approximately 45 minutes where some people were having to wait four and five hours. So it is that education and it is being proactive that can really make it where you go from having a bad time flying to an I'm okay flying. Absolutely. And I know that you guys were talking about other forms of transportation. I will say that, you know, I have been able to do the auto train on Amtrak from Sanford, Florida, up to Lorton, Virginia. Um, I really think that it's that same thing of being able to talk to someone, telling somebody, this is my disability. This is what I need for assistance. They ended up getting me into a sleeper car and it was really a great, great experience for me. I will tell you, if you are ever doing that and you are able to get the sleeper car, it is very accessible for someone like me. And like I said, I'm a C5 quad. I'm a full transfer. You know, I will say that whoever is going with you, if you have a PCA, they will have to be able to climb up for the bunk bed. But, you know, hey, it's it's uh, it, it was a good experience, though. And so I think, though, no matter what you're doing, you really have to make sure that you're doing a lot of pre-planning. I know a lot of people that don't have disabilities don't have to think about those things. And you're kind of like, hey, this is extra. But at the end of the day, it can make the difference between you having a very good experience or you having a very bad experience, no matter what form of transportation you are having. Absolutely. Definitely can save you a lot of heartache, even though it seems like a lot of stuff that you have to do on the back end. But yeah, I I definitely would agree with that. My goodness, Natalie, thank you so much for sharing with us today about your travel experiences. Um, You know, just everyone getting ready for the holidays and um, traveling home. I know that I personally found them super insightful. um, And I'm sure that our listeners have also uh, found those experiences insightful as well. So yeah, thank you so, so much for sharing with us today. Wow, that was amazing. I am inspired and so excited for the holidays. Why don't we go ahead and close out this episode with All I Want for Christmas is You, because I've heard it's Stephanie's favorite song, and that's how I'm going to remember that forever. Oh, wait. (laughs) Before we get to that, Stephanie, do you have a holiday-themed joke for us? I mean, you know, I, I started thinking about it, and since Michelle doesn't like my jokes as much, I've decided to do something different for Christmas and give her an early Christmas present. I'm, it's a haiku. I, it's a haiku. Oh, this is good. All right. All right. Everybody needs to get their Starbucks holiday cups. This is very important. Very important PSA. I'm so worried. Go on. <clears throat> Caffeine is important. Necessary for me to function. Drink coffee now. <laughs>
or go caffeinate now. Man, I messed up my own haiku. I guess I... <laughs> Ips. Ips. Uh, happy holidays, y'all. Sorry I messed up the haiku. Please don't send us hate mail for that. Podcast at NDRN.org. Jack, how can the people find us on social media? Eh, log off social media. Spend time with your family. <laughs>